Welcome to The Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Hey friends, great to be here with you. I'm your host, Simon Hill. I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. Today, I sit down with immunologist and author, Dr. Jenna Machocki. Jenna has over 20 years experience researching the effect of diet and lifestyle on the immune system. What is our immune system? How does it work? Why is chronic inflammation a problem? Can we boost our immune system? All of that and more inside this two and a half hour immune system masterclass. Hi, Jenna. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for uh, having me on. It's great to be here. This one has been uh, a long time coming. And as we discussed offline, I get the feeling that this is going to be at least a two-part episode. Uh, There's a lot to cover here. So firstly, I have to say I've got your book here for those that are watching on video. I have to say congratulations. Uh, Your blueprint for strong immunity you did a, a fantastic job. It, it's a highly complex area of health, but you managed to make it very interesting and accessible. And perhaps what I love most, very instructive and actionable. So congratulations. And I'm hoping today our conversation is a, a combination of exactly that. Some of the, the interesting and accessible information about our immune system so we can better understand it. And then also some of those actionable tips that we can use to better our immune health. Oh, thanks for the feedback. Yeah, it's great to know. I feel like it was um, the book that I had to read myself. (laughs) Sometimes we have a lot of knowledge in an area, but we struggle to apply it to real life. So I was really trying to bridge that gap for people. That was one of my questions, actually. When you did embark on, on writing the book, you obviously learned a lot and consolidated a lot of the things that you already knew. Was there anything in particular that you were really, really surprised with that perhaps you thought, wow, why is this either so poorly understood or just not fully appreciated by the general public when it comes to our immune health? Mm, That's a good question. I think there was perhaps two key things. One is this uh, process of self-compassion. So being really compassionate to ourselves, um, realizing that we're all kind of part of this crazy world and nobody's getting it right. And that that voice inside of us that's really critical is never going to be a good motivator for change. And, you know, people who are taught self-compassion have improved markers of their immune system in their blood, lower levels of unwanted inflammation. Um, and there are scientific studies looking at this. And I just thought that was really profound, especially as a mother of kids. I was thinking, well, this is something I wish I'd been taught in school um, and how much better we'd all be getting on in the world if we could just be a bit kinder to ourselves. I think there's a lot of research around kind, acts of kindness to others But that direct link between self-kindness and our immune system, I think that was really profound. And then the other thing is probably that the one thing I would hope people would take away from this conversation, so maybe it's good to get it out there up front, is this idea that 
your immune system needs time, you know, and we all are looking for a way to be invincible to germs, to recover as quickly as possible. What are all the interventions we can utilize to, you know, get back on our feet? And, you know, there's an element to your immune system that just needs time. And it's, you know, when we get over an acute illness, then we have that period of convalescence, which is kind of a lost art, where you're not just snapping your fingers and you're back to normal. We don't really have space in our busy lives to convalesce and sort of allow ourselves that adequate recovery. Mm, So we can't just hack our way to a healthy immune system. There's few sort of back doors, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we might come to some of those. I have some, some of the frequently... Uh, ask questions that come up with regards to certain supplements and and the immune system, which no doubt you get a lot. And I'd like to circle back perhaps after we've spoken about what the immune system is and what it does and and maybe entertain some of the potential mechanisms that perhaps do link that self-compassion with a more robust, healthier uh, immune system. I think that's that's a fascinating thing to, to think about. So I mentioned at the start, This will likely be a two-part episode. And this episode, I wanted to really focus on what is the immune system and then those aspects of our lifestyle that we can use to modulate it for the better. And then the second episode focused more on specific conditions, so autoimmune conditions and allergies, uh, et cetera. So for this episode to kick us off, I think it might be nice to start with your personal journey into this space, becoming an immunologist. What is an immunologist, firstly? And what was it that inspired you to pursue a career in this field of science? It's a good place to start. Um, I didn't really know what uh, immunology was when I was a kid and I was sort of making those decisions uh, as to what I wanted to do with my life. But I had a real... Uh, a real early memory of being fascinated by the human body and, and health and disease. And I don't know where really where this came from, but uh, I grew up on a tiny little farm in rural Scotland, um, very much uh, cut off from sort of uh, modern life. And I don't know if it was just being in that environment, seeing the circle of life on the farm, um, And my mum was very much of the opinion that things could be solved with food um, and she could feed us to health. So maybe that was an early influence in my uh, future path that I've taken. But immunology is the study of the immune system. And when I started researching what I wanted to do, it seemed to be the uh, subject that encompassed um, all of these different areas that I was fascinated with, like why do people get sick? What makes them better? Um, And I like to describe the immune system as the wellness system because it really is touching every aspect of our physical and mental health. It's branched off of microbiology. So we really have this kind of narrow lens where people tend to only think about their immune system in regards to infection protection. But really, it's, it's so much broader than that. And I, I hope that going forward, we really do broaden the lens of how we think about our immune system to not just think about infections. So I went off to study immunology. This is at the medical school at the University of Glasgow. Um, And then from there, I've worked in various fields. Um, I did a PhD focusing on asthma and allergy. I've worked in clinical research, um, looking at 
immunotherapy for allergy. Uh, I then followed my interests in, in diet and I moved to Switzerland and I worked on dietary fiber in the immune system for many years in the microbiome. Um, and then I moved back to the UK and sort of still keep my interests around diet and lifestyle. Um, and then have started to focus more on science communication. And I've worked with the UK Science Media Centre for many years, sort of shaping what goes into um, um, the media that we read, helping them sort of break down headlines uh, and, and deliver that information in a way that's evidence-based and accessible to the lay audience, but doesn't always happen. Um, but I think science communication is a big part of, of being in science. So you mentioned there that the immune system is much more than just dealing with infections. And and you hope that we come to understand or see the immune system as a much broader system with much uh, more effects on our physiology than just defending us against infections. So maybe we could, from a high level, just explain or dig a little bit deeper there. What is the immune system as a whole helping us achieve on a, on a daily basis? What's its role in, in keeping us alive and healthy? Yeah, I mean... It's a, it's a difficult thing to describe. It's vastly complicated and mind-bogglingly confusing, but let's try and keep it really simple. Um, we think about the immune system in the wrong way. We think of it as a, a binary switch that can be flipped on or off when we please, or a magical force that we can sort of supercharge with supplements to make us invincible. But really, it's this complex dance of billions of different bits. It includes things like our white blood cells, which are not just in the blood, confusingly. These are also located underneath all of our body barriers. So that would be things like your skin, the lining of your nose, your respiratory tract, the lining of your digestive tract, anywhere that you have an interface with the environment is enriched with populations of immune cells, these white blood cells. And um, I teach immunology at um, a local university here. And when we teach what the immune system is, we're also including in that description those barriers themselves. So the skin is part of our immune system, the lining of our respiratory tract, those little epithelial cells, it's one cell thick, it's very delicate. That's part of our immune system. Same with our digestive tract. And then we have those structures as they're put together. So the mucus layer that lives on top of your respiratory tract, the collection of microbes that are on us and in us, the different antimicrobial peptides that those barrier tissues are producing, and then underneath the immune cells that live there. And then we can go to things like the lymphatic system, which is a, um, a whole series of vessels, a bit like your circulatory system, that's carrying your immune cells around the body allowing them to do that um, surveillance function, looking out for untoward things that might be trying to damage your body. And then we have little hubs of immune activity, which are our lymph nodes, and then larger organs like the spleen, the bone marrow, um, the thymus gland. These are all parts of your immune system. It really is vast and it's it's everywhere. And and I mean, that's, that speaks to what you highlighted earlier around it being difficult to kind of define. It's, it's, it's much harder than, say, the musculoskeletal system uh, or the nervous system where you can point to bones or muscles and nerves. And I think most people can visualize that much easier than the immune system, which is a little bit more vast or much more vast and, and less tangible, uh, so to speak. 
These terms innate and adaptive immunity come up a lot. What, what do they refer to? And perhaps more specifically, what are the different parts of our immune system that relate to each of those? Yeah, it's good to sort of clarify those terms. I'm always wary of getting too bogged down in in, in the sort of uh, definitions of the immune system because there's a lot of people being trying for many years to categorize it in ways that make it a little bit easier to understand. But put simply, we can broadly uh, put it into two um, pots. So we have the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. So together, they're working collaboratively to safeguard your body. The innate immune system is something that we're we're born with. It's the first line of defense. So it broadly does include those body barriers themselves, but also the innate immune cell populations that are located underneath those barriers to to our body. So they're waiting there looking out for anything to happen, looking out for infection or damage. um, And they're going to then raise a red flag that there's something wrong in the body. Say, for example, a virus infects one of your uh, airway epithelial cells, so those barrier cells of the airways. They're going to start to release um, what we call cytokines. So these are the communication molecules of the immune system. And that's going to send out a signal to the body that we need to call for backup. We're going to draw in more innate immune cells from the blood. The bone marrow is going to be involved in mobilizing more of those to supply that that need. Um, And those innate immune cells are kind of like a full frontal, like feet first immune response. They're the ones that are starting inflammation, which is this kind of first line defense. It's spewing out of lots of toxic things to make the environment really uncomfortable for that germ. So it's 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 essential for life. I think inflammation is perhaps something that we'll get on to talk about in more depth, but it's really a first line defense. It's starting within hours of something damaging our body or infecting our body. And it's there to not only make it uncomfortable for any germs, but it starts the process of healing and repair. Inflammation is not just the damage, it's also the resolution part. So the innate's this first line defense. And then the adaptive is this highly specific, slower response. It takes maybe five to seven days to get up and running, but it has this long-lived memory. So the adaptive immune system is what we think about when we discuss T and B cells. People might be familiar with those cell types just from all the conversations around COVID. Um, So when we're talking about vaccination, we're looking for a T and B cell response that is long-lived. And that's the immunity that's going to protect you from future infections with the same germ. So you have these two arms, but they're really working together. Um, And in terms of genetics, it's, it's, I almost see it like layers. So we know that there can be little uh, snips in our our genes. So there's our little changes in our genes that might affect things like the receptors for those cytokines. So some people might have uh, a more aggressive inflammatory response than someone else just because of tiny genetic changes. But one of the most important and unique aspects of the adaptive immune system, that slow um, specific immune response that involves the T and B cells, is actually the way the genetics play a role here. 
And one family of immunity genes known as the major histocompatibility complex, sometimes it's called the human leukocyte antigen. Um, this is a collection of genes that are actually the most diverse in our body. So we often think that the genes that would make us different would be things like eye color, skin color, hair color, height, those physical attributes. But actually the genes in your body that are most unique to you are the ones that make up your immune system. And this is because there's a very unique way in which you inherit them from your parents. And then those genes will further recombine in a completely random fashion to make the receptors that sit on top of your T cells and B cells, which means that when you're born, this process is happening, you have a unique set of T and B cells that are different from your parents, your siblings, the person sitting next to you. And so therefore you have an inherent difference in how you might respond to an infection compared to someone else. And I think with COVID, we've had, um, I don't want to talk all the time about COVID, but it's a useful tool as an example because uh, we've had so much focus on it. Why do people respond differently to COVID? We've known for a long time that there's an inherent diversity in how people respond to infections. And COVID's sort of shown us that in a really magnified way. But that part of this is due to these compatibility genes that make us all so unique. And there's an evolutionary reason for that, because if we all responded in exactly the same way to the same infection, we probably wouldn't exist as a species because something would have been successful enough to wipe us out. So it's important that we have that diversity. And it's kind of like a bell-shaped curve where most of us will fall in the middle, but then there's some some people will be kind of on either end. And do you have a kind of sense to to what extent someone's immune system can adapt? So how much is, you know, I'm not sure if you can put a percentage on this, but how much would be dictated by mum and dad and those genes that you've got? versus the things that you're doing in your your lifestyle that could modulate the immune system? I think a large part is going to be that lifestyle environment interaction with this, the genetic component. So I think it's, it is probably, there's different estimates you can find in the literature, maybe 70% is what you do, and then the rest is down to, you know, the genetics that you've inherited. I think it's really hard to unpick because it is like layers so in different situations, different things will play a more more or less of a role. And if we're thinking about the kind of general performance of our immune system, and we mentioned terminology before, and you kind of, you spoke about this idea that I think many people think about their immune system and and turning up that dial, that's, that's a good thing. And we often hear the, the word boost is used quite a bit. And in your book, you say to forget about boosting. It's all about balance. So what I'm wondering is when it comes to balance and some of these parts of our immune system that you've, you've mentioned before, what, what is an unbalanced uh, immune system? What's happening? And, and what does balance a healthy immune system look like? What's the distinction between the two? Yeah, I think um, it's, if we think about the immune system as having a sort of a, uh, the part that's going out to fight infection, repair damage, then we also have the part that's the peacekeeper part that's going to come in and switch that off when it's no longer needed and bring that to a resolution, heal and repair our tissue, get things back to homeostasis. And so we often forget that there's this 
other part of the immune system that's designed to turn the other part off. So it is really about balance. And in in such a sort of complicated system, you need that overall harmony. Um, You need to have the part that's causing the damage to get rid of the, the problem, but the part that's also coming in to resolve that. And it's a very cleverly orchestrated thing, but I think with so many different components, there is a lot that can go wrong. And their immune system is very much a sensing system. So it's looking for certain inputs. Uh, and these are happening across our lifestyle, our life, sorry. I think the first uh, few years of life are really important for that developing of the immune system. But it's continual across our life. It's I often say immune systems are things that are made, not born. You're sort of born with a baseline but then it's going to be shaped across your life. Um, In the book, I write about this concept of your immunobiography because people will often come to me and say, I've got this, I've got that. What do I need to take? What do I need to do? And I'm thinking, well, what's gone before has got you to where you are today. So can we go back and try and unpick some of that? And then we can see where it might be best to intervene. Um, And I think sometimes there's a limit to what we can do. I want to talk a little bit more about setting up our immune system for success. And, and I think it, it makes sense to go right back to, to the beginning, um, as you just mentioned. Before that, just quickly on, t- on terminology, I'd like to make sure that I'm, I'm using uh, correct terminology where possible. So boosting is, is kind of off the table. That's, that's not really reflective of, of what's happening um, or what we want to happen. We're looking for balance. What about the idea of building a a kind of strong or robust immune system. Is that terminology that you would use? Would that be synonymous with a a balanced immune system? Yeah, I mean, it's a a tricky one because obviously in my book, uh, I put the term strong immunity. (laughs) Honestly, the title gave me such a headache because I wanted to have something that really reflected what I was trying to convey, but not use the word boost. And I guess... um, you know, in the book, I write about this idea of resilience, you know, like having um, an immune system that can like uh, respond appropriately, but then come to a place of resolution appropriately, have that right threshold of response. So it's not overshooting, making someone really ill because they're responding um, in an exaggerated fashion. So a lot of time we see people getting very sick because their immune system's overshooting and the, the off switch is what's missing. Um, then we have this idea of the immune system getting skewed. So in the term, uh, in terms of allergy, within that adaptive immune system, we mentioned we have these T and B cells, we have different subtypes of T, T, T cells. It gets really uh, complicated if we break it down too far, but we can, uh, these, these counterbalance each other, for example, TH1 and TH2. They're really important in different ways. They fight different kinds of infection. But we think that um, certain, a combination of events that happen, including genetics and various environmental inputs, can skew towards a TH2 response that leads the person to over-respond to allergens. So an inappropriate immune response to something benign in their environment. Um, and they lack that TH1 to counterbalance it. So it gets really, there's lots of kind of um, on and off switches that are happening. And it's kind of like some of it 
is shaped by these inputs, but some of it is sort of beyond our control in terms of uh, uh, what's going to lead to this overall balance and harmony within the immune system. And it's changing across our lifespan. It's not, it's a very plastic system. I mean, it's plastic for a reason because we can evolve it and tailor it to a specific um germ or threat and we can switch it off and when we need to so it's supposed to be plastic but then it's going to obviously that leads to a lot of things that could go wrong okay so balanced it is is this is a lot of this kind of semantics or or do you feel that the the use of set like boosting the immune system in the general public is problematic and and could actually be damaging or detrimental Oh, you know what? It's a it's a good question because when like the general public are are using that term and talking to me about it, I I'm really sympathetic. I know what they mean. They're concerned. They're worried. They want to feel well. Uh, you know, they want to or give their children the best chance of getting through the latest not season without being off school or nursery. Um, but when it's used. Um, when people are trying to sell you things, that's when I think it's a little more problematic. And a lot of what the work I've tried to do is to hopefully save people money and be able to put their money where it's actually going to work for them. Um, there's a lot of what I call immunity washing. So especially since COVID, greenwashing is when companies are making out that they're more environmentally friendly without actually doing the work. They're just slapping on those marketing labels. And I think we've seen a lot with the immune system as well. There's a lot of immune washing, um, you know, because a, a product contains a certain vitamin, it can have that sort of immune boosting slogan on the front. But then so does a, an orange or, you know, a piece of fruit or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, gosh, I've seen a mad rush of of immune related products hit the shelves in the last couple of years. So um, that's very <laughs> interesting. Let's let's go back to the beginning of life, and I'm I'm curious. So I, I think you you've mentioned, or um, at least I'm wondering, is it the the sort of innate immune system that's mostly developing when we're in our mother's womb up until birth? Um, and then once uh, we're born and we're exposed to pathogens, is that when the adaptive immune system sort of starts getting trained up, so to speak? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. You're sort of born with your innate immune system, that first line of defense, which in kids tends to be very good. But the adaptive immune response is the one that's developing um, after we um, are born. And that's going to be shaped across our life. So we have a kind of um, group of blank canvas T and B cells of our adaptive immune system when we're born. These these have receptors that have been randomly configured as completely random process in our bone marrow and our thymus. They're put out to circulate around the body of this new little human being. Um, And it's kind of a needle in the haystack. You just kind of hope that one of those T cells would be able to recognize whatever virus has infected that child. And then that process starts of making a memory to that infection um, that in some cases can be lifelong. But immune memory, I think, is an interesting point to pause on because it's over the last couple of years with all the focus on COVID, we've really seen that we don't understand a lot about 
the determining factors of a robust immune memory. So retaining that population of antibodies and T-cells for a long time, that means if we're exposed to that germ again, we can respond uh, quickly and we don't have that lag time where we have to generate all those communities of uh, T and B cell cl- clones to fight that infection. Yeah, I was thinking um, with my team earlier, why is it that some viruses like chickenpox you seem to only get once, perhaps in certain circumstances, maybe more than that, but for most people once from what I understand, but then other viruses like COVID, you can become reinfected. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So chickenpox is a good example. And I think that one of the reasons you get it once is down to the location in your body. So your immune system is unique depending on where you are. So you have a lung immune system, a digestive immune system. The blood is a different compartment. Um, and if you have an infection in the blood, like chickenpox or measles, you tend to make a very robust immune memory response. Um, perhaps that's for a few reasons. Having an infection in the blood means it can be systemic all over the body, could be quite problematic. Versus if you have uh, an infection in your airways, um, as much as your airways are vital for breathing, it's more contained there. Your airways are constantly exposed to germs, good and bad in your environment, to particulate matter, allergens, pollution. Your airways are very um, immune tolerant because every day you're walking around breathing and all sorts of stuff that you don't want your immune system to respond to because it could compromise your breathing. So you already have what we call a tolerogenic environment in the lungs. So it's much harder to mount an immune response to the infection because there's always these sort of trade-offs in biology. If we if we go too hard too fast, we're going to damage our airways, we won't be able to breathe. So we don't want to be reacting to everything that comes in the airways. And the same goes for the gut. So again, it's this um, very delicate uh, area of a lot of immune tolerance. So it's much harder for your immune system to make uh, a response and a, a robust memory response in these locations. And the other thing is that Lots of respiratory viruses seem to shift the little uh, patterns of molecules on their surface, so-called antigens. These are the patterns that our immune system is looking for to respond to. So the germ is trying to get away from any prior immunity we've made by um, evolving what it looks like. And I think that just goes down to the fact we've evolved in this germy world. The whole reason we have an immune system is because we've had this to and fro battle with germs. They are trying to infect us. We're trying to counter that infection. They are evolving their genes so that they can... um, get around our immunity. And then our immune system also has ways of trying to improve itself over time to get uh, to get back on top of that germ. So you have this kind of tug of war. And so we think that some locations in the body make memory responses much better than others. And this is down to characteristics of both the, the, the germ and the different characteristics of the immune compartments within the body. That makes a lot of sense. Coming back to setting up the the immune system for success early in life. I'm, I'm curious if we're considering um, that stage 
uh, when we're growing in our mother's womb up until birth. I, I think there may be uh, mothers listening or uh, some folks that are pregnant listening and or maybe they have a desire to have a child in the future and maybe they're wondering, they're curious, are there any things that a pregnant woman could do to um, help that baby um, develop a, a kind of well-balanced immune system? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I feel like the immune system is so highly plastic in childhood that it's a great opportunity to intervene. And a lot of the issues we're seeing in adults now, perhaps we could have, if we had the knowledge earlier, we could have done something. So I think it's really about those first 1,000 days. So that's from conception to two years of age. And then upstream of that, the mother's health going into conception. Uh, I'm sure there's definitely uh, some evidence for the father's health as well. But I guess if we focus on the mother, um, there's a lot of things uh, around um, having adequate nutrition, having a good body composition during that conception period. There's some evidence for the omega-3s, so these um, fats that are they're important for the membranes of our immune cells. They're also the raw materials for that inflammatory resolution. There's some um, evidence for this being really important in the mother and in the first couple of years of life. And there's growing evidence for probiotics being used. I think really it comes down to the mother having her gut microbiome in sort of the best state it could be because you're going to pass on those microbes to the child. And we know that, and I don't want to scare anyone, I'm also a mother, so I know there's a lot of anxiety about trying to do everything right, but that uh, the way that you're coming into the world, so what type of birth you're having, which is seeding the baby with um, the microbes from the mother, uh, if they're having a vaginal delivery, is kind of the best way to set the baby up for success. There's definitely differences in ch children that are born by cesarean section in terms of the types of microbes that are colonizing them. Particularly the bifidobacteria seem to be very important. So in early life, we actually don't see a healthy microbiome as being really diverse, and that's different in adulthood, as we can go on to discuss. But it's really those... Um, uh, bifidobacteria seem to be really important in training and educating this adaptive immune response so we don't have the skewing towards a TH2, which is this sort of allergic response. So we really want to um, give the, the, the right microbial inputs. And this is a huge part of shaping our immune system, both as adults and as children. And the other thing is um, um, breast milk and those um, uh, specific um, sugars that are in breast milk that are just there to cultivate the microbes in the gut. So these are, again, sort of the fertilizer, giving that baby's gut the right uh, environment to grow the right microbes. And then these microbes are up close and personal with immune cells located along the digestive tract. And we have a huge amount of immune tissue along our digestive tract. They estimate like 70 to 80% is located there. And they're constantly in crosstalk. And we 
we know that these microbes are educating and training immune cells, sort of setting the, the rheostat so that they are in the right position to respond in an appropriate way. So these are kind of the, the really big inputs. But then once the baby's born, and um, obviously breastfeeding lasts for whatever amount of time, but you have all those other exposures. Um, some very early studies showed that um, this, this concept of the hygiene hypothesis, so babies that are exposed to um, uh, farm animals, uh, live in rural communities, more siblings, more um, exposure to dirt and benign germs in the environment, tend to go on and have less allergies and immune-related problems. We've updated the hygiene hypothesis, so it's um, more reflective of what's really going on. And it's less about hygiene, so public hygiene is really important, washing your hands, all those kind of things play a role. But it's more that we need certain good microbes to give those inputs into our immune system in early life so it gets off on the best trajectory. So we now, um, there's a chap called Graham Rook who has come up with this reduced biodiversity theory or sometimes called the old friends theory where we're missing these good microbes in early life and some of that is going to be problematic for the future development and um, health and balance of our immune system. And I think that there's only so much maybe that we can do I know you've spoken with the Sonnenbergs who are um, fantastic in this area. And I actually quoted some of their work in my first book, The Science of Staying Well, looking at uh, where where we've lost microbes over the generations and whether we can get those back or not, it's not quite clear. So it might not even be something that you can do as a parent. It might be three generations ago, the, the sort of erosion of the microbes started and now you're uh, you know in that situation where there's only so much you can do to get that back so if we're not exposed to some of these microbes we kind of miss out on a bit of that training opportunity in those earlier years is would that be a sort of fair summary of that yeah i think so uh, there was a great study i think it was 2 years ago in somewhere in Scandinavia, where they um, they took children in daycares and they tried to keep everything as as the same as possible in terms of what the kids were eating and how they were feeding, um, and they just enriched the daycares with more opportunities to be in green space, digging in the dirt, um, you know, just having those opportunities to expose themselves to to those benign microbes in our environment. I mean, children are always touching their face, putting their hands in their mouth. They're they're public, you know, those hand washing and everything is a little bit of a work in progress for kids. And maybe there's a reason for that. They're sampling their their environment. And um, what they found was they could look in the blood and look at the development of their immune system and the balance of those sort of pro and anti-inflammatory arms. And they saw that there was improvements. I think they looked for, was it three months? I'd have to go back and um, and check the, the details. But um, it was a short intervention that saw measurable changes in the immune system. And so I think when we think we need to expose our kids to germs to make them uh, have a good immune system, it's really not about infectious germs, but it's more about the benign germs that live in natural environments because everything has a microbiome, not just our bodies, but the planet. And so we need to protect the diversity 
both within ourselves, but also of the spaces that we frequent. So, you know, I think for anyone who's a parent or becoming a parent, letting your kid dig in the dirt is important, but so is washing your hands before eating. So, you know, there's just um, that balance between hygiene and um, microbial exposures. Yeah, it's not all or nothing. You can still have a shower and use soap. Uh, you, you Before we move on, you mentioned... Uh, probiotics and some emerging evidence with regards to uh, pregnant women and, and there being some potential benefits during pregnancy. Is there any sort of specific recommendations yet with regards to a, a type of probiotic or what a pregnant woman may want to look out for if she's interested in, in getting one? Yeah, I think... I'm always really uh, nervous to make uh, broad recommendations because I don't want people to think that they can ignore the, you know, those basic things that can also support the gut. Um, I think lactobacillus rhamnosus um, (TG) is one that has emerged um, as being uh, important, but again, I think it's really about getting the, the soil prepared for having the best opportunity to support that microbial diversity, if you can. Um, and to do that, we just need to fertilize with the right foods and remove any things that could be disrupting the, the, the gut microbe communities. All of which we're hopefully going to dive into. If we're thinking about these early years of life here, I'm, I'm interested. Let's say that for whatever reason, uh, a child gets to three, four, five, and their immune system has not developed it's in, in a sort of optimal fashion. And I'm curious, if, if that occurs, are we able to, to modulate the immune system later in life to sort of promote a, a more optimal functioning immune system at that period? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think the answer is it depends. And I realize that will not satisfy many people, but the answer to most immunological questions will begin with it depends. Um, I would say we, you've got sort of little dials and uh, of the things that are under your control. So there's many things that are not under your control, how you were born, you know, if you were breastfed, what happened in those very early years. Um, that's all happened in the past. We talked about the, the, you know, we may not have inherited the right microbes or had given them the best opportunity in early life, but we can then come in working across all those dials to try and see if we can bump them up a notch. And I do think that one of the risks is that everyone puts all their emphasis on diet when it comes to the immune system. Um, it was strange when I wrote my first book, I put the bit about diet at the end because I really wanted to elevate all the other stuff. But then in the, the more recent book, I put the diet part quite upfront. But instead of saying like, here's what you need to eat for your immune system, it was like, okay, what's your relationship with food? Because let's figure that out first, because that's going to be the barrier to you eating all the things that you're your immune system needs um, because we eat for all sorts of reasons. We don't just eat because we're hungry. We eat because we're sad or we're stressed or we're emotional or we're influenced by all the marketing in our food environment. So if you're a mother of a parent, uh, sorry, a parent of a, a child, you know, who's 
gone through that very early life period and now, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, it's about really creating the food environment that's going to work for them. And that's not an easy feat. You want to make sure that you're getting in the fiber to the diet to feed those microbes, to train and educate the immune system. And as a parent myself, that's really hard to do because kids know what they want to eat and they get older, they get a taste of, you know, all the yummy, sweet, salty, uh, highly processed foods. Um, And then it's less exciting to eat the apple. Um, So creating your own micro food environment at home and discussing why we need to eat certain foods at certain times, I think it's one of the best ways we can start to educate our kids, talking to them about the gut microbiome, about feeding those microbes inside that are working so hard for us. Um, And that then hopefully extends as they get older. And the same goes for adults. If you really want to have a a way into your immune system, then the gut is a great opportunity to go there. And it will be about fertilizing in a way that you can try and have the most diverse populations of microbes in there. Each one has got their own collection of genetic material. They're doing a different job for you. They're breaking down that fiber. And what they're doing is producing their sort of metabolic waste products, which for us is kind of like your own personalized pharmacy. It's being absorbed into our body, into our bloodstream, and it's going around the body and it's having immune modulatory effects. And one of the best um Examples of that is the short-chain fatty acids, um, which are basically metabolic byproducts of when your gut microbes eat fiber. And they are hugely important for the immune system. I want to come to our dietary pattern and explore that in a little bit more detail in a moment. But if someone is, is listening and is hearing all of these things that you're saying about the immune system and is is just wondering where their immune system is currently at, such that if they were to get sort of sick uh, from a from a bacterial infection or a viral infection, would it respond well? Is there a way for them to kind of objectively look at how their immune health um, or the status of their immune health, I should say, through laboratory tests, uh, blood tests, or would their body be also sending them various signals that may also be clues as to how their immune system is functioning? Oh, this is a great question. And again, I wish I could give a really simple answer. The question is, the, the, the answer is ultimately we don't have good tools to comprehensively measure all aspects of your immune system. So we can look at infection history. Um, Are you experiencing infections more frequently? Are you experiencing more unusual infections? Um, We can look at uh, certain things in your blood. So do you have raised inflammatory markers? But again, these are quite nonspecific. It wouldn't tell you what's causing the inflammation. Um, We can look at antibodies in the blood as a sort of readout of what's going on and we can look for specific types of antibodies. We can look at your your white blood cell count, but that's only looking in, in the blood. 
Um, and as I mentioned earlier, every compartment of your body all, all has its own unique immune system. So unless I'm like biopsying your airways or your gut, which is way more invasive and you're not going to be able to get that done at a routine doctor's appointment, it, there's kind of these blunt tools to measure your immune system. Um, we can also look at things like uh, symptoms, history of allergies, uh, any uh, autoimmune diagnosis, um, and all those kind of broad, uh, vague things like, you know, if you have a lot of aches and pains, um, if you are diagnosed with maybe a metabolic condition because of the way that your metabolism and your immune system are working together, then there's a chance that that is going to have an impact on your immune function. So it's really quite difficult. It's actually something that I'm working on. Hopefully I can share more about that soon. But getting a really comprehensive way to measure our immune system is something that's lacking. And sadly, it's that clinical history. It's that immunobiography, what writing, you know, your health history, any antecedents that could have got you where you are today, as well as whatever um, measurements we can get. So white cell count in the blood, inflammatory markers, you know, antibody testing and, and piecing it all together and trying to fill in the gaps with that, that um, conversation with the doctor. The two that I see most kind of discussed online the, of these biomarkers is HCRP and the white blood cell count. And so I'm curious, obviously it's much more complex than that. You're saying these aren't perfect markers, they're not comprehensive enough. But let's say someone gets a blood test done with their physician and HCRP and white blood cell count come back as normal. Would that be a fairly good indicator that, that things are, are going well or are you saying that that's only a really small snapshot and is not really indicative of the entire picture? I've definitely seen high sensitivity CRP be be really low, below like where we would expect it to be if somebody had something going on. Um, I think it is a good indicator that there's no acute inflammation, so you know, suffering from an acute infection. But I don't think it's always the best marker of what else is going on in the system. It's a good, it's a kind of good indicator that, you know, there's nothing crazy. Um, and then the lymphocyte count can show us if there's po changes in those populations and the ratios of the different populations, which again, can be quite useful um, in showing maybe there is a one part of your immune system is not um, working properly. Uh, so there's a so ratio of neutrophils to lymphocytes, which is a kind of good readout um, of if there's inflammation going on in the body. But again, it's it's just not perfect. Um, and people can still come with, with symptoms and unexplained things going on, but the blood start to look a bit normal. And I think what you really need is a way to really... Um, comprehensively look at all the different subtypes of immune cell and a bunch of other markers in the blood in one go, which is really expensive and could only really be done under research conditions. If someone's white blood cell count is, is low, for example, my mother's white blood cell count tends to be on the low side, but within the normal range, but down towards the bottom part. And that's the same for me. It's also the same for my brother. Not sort of acutely low, but over decades, consistent blood tests show that it is 
on the on the low side of the reference range. Is is that a problem at all? That's interesting. And I think um, that's where having that reference point is really useful because um, if that's almost like your normal, then that's obviously working for you. It's maybe a red flag if you had um, some clinical history or symptoms that were going along with that that were uh, indicative that there was it was leading to something more sinister. So it could be that, that that's how, you know, that's in your family, that's your normal. So I think it's always important to broaden the lens, take in um, that clinical conversation as well as the, the data. And you mentioned before something that people could consider is the frequency of having an infection. And I'm curious, is there any data out there that has looked at what's normal for for the average person, let's say, over the course of a year? What's the the sort of normal number of infections that someone could expect that would leave them thinking, okay, well, my 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 immune system is is functioning as it should? Yeah, it's a really kind of broad way of of looking at it. Um, it's sort of one of the ways we would diagnose immunodeficiency. So a deficiency in a specific part of your immune system, if you were showing an unusual pattern of infection, so more frequent infections, taking longer to recover, or um, unusual infections, so not just the routine ones. And actually, for adults, um, at least in the UK, we have um, a guideline that it's normal for adults to get around six minor infections per year. And for children, that could be up until 12 infections per year. So this is certainly a piece where I've tried to do a bit of education around because I think we do want to be invincible to germs. We want to be completely able to never get infected. But when we consider the context of the world we live in, where we have infectious diseases, it's uh, if you mix with other people, which is the main route that most infections will um, transmit, it's highly likely that because of that exposure component, you're going to fall sick every now and again. It doesn't necessarily mean you have a terrible immune system, but if you're able to recover well uh, in a, a timely fashion, then that's a good sign that your immune system's working pretty good. And I always say to people, the way you go into an infection can almost determine how you're going to come out of that infection. So we want to be going in with everything working optimally, you know, having the right nutritional background, the right um, physiological health, the right mental health to allow our immune system to have all the tools it needs, the time, um, the nutrients, everything to deal with that infection in a timely way and then come out of it. But if, you know, if you're living in a cave and you never see any people, then probably you don't get sick very often, which is why during lockdown, a lot of people reported not getting sick because they just weren't mixing with people. So there's that there's that exposure element of it, um, you know, and, and also those compatibility genes that I mentioned in the beginning, you know, a germ enters your body. It's going chopped up uh, by your immune cells into tiny bits. So all those little peptide chains, bits of protein, uh, are, so your, your immune cells are going to chop it up, those innate immune cells, and they're going to show it to your T cells on these um, major histocompatibility molecules, which are encoded by your unique set of genes. 
And it might just be your luck that your innate immune cells are presenting the most immunogenic parts of that germ and your T cells happen to have a receptor that locks onto that like a lock and key, which then initiates that adaptive immune response, activates those T cells and you make a clone of these highly specific T cells that get on top of that germ quickly. You've got B cells producing highly specific antibodies. But if you have another set of compatibility genes, your innate immune cells might not show the best bits of that germ to your T cells. So your T cells go and attack the wrong target almost. So you might have a very good immune response, but it's not to the best target on the germ. And so there's kind of this bit that's beyond our control where there's no hierarchy in these compatibility genes and the way they turn on our, our T cells. And it's really, it's really quite interesting, I think. There's even some fascinating studies that show that people who are really resilient to HIV infection, no matter how much they're um, exposed, it's down to having certain compatibility genes. There's also studies showing that certain compatibility genes will will, um, correspond with an extremely high risk of getting certain autoimmune diseases. So ankylosing spondylitis, there's um, certain compatibility genes that are giving you almost an 80% chance that you'll go on to develop it. There's even compatibility genes that are associated with things like celiac disease. So it's really kind of It might make you more robust to an infection, but it might increase your risk of getting an autoimmune disease. And it's kind of this trade-off because it's so random the way that you inherit these genes and they recombine. So it's it's kind of, um, a lot of it's out of our control. With regards to the the common cold, am I right that that, that most of the common colds are, um, are driven by viruses, not bacteria? Would that... Would that be accurate? Yeah, yeah. For the most part, it's things like rhinovirus that's causing it, some of the other coronaviruses and a few other viruses. And what's the difference between a bacterial infection and a viral infection, if, if someone's kind of curious about that? Yeah, so viruses are, are clever little things. They're kind of like a bit of genetic material wrapped with a little capsule. And they are obligatory intracellular pathogens, which means they, they need our cells to survive. So they have to infect inside our cells. So they occupy an intracellular niche. And then they'll hijack our DNA replication machinery and use that to make copies of themselves. And then they'll burst out of our cell, exploding with all these new copies that then go and infect other cells. So they need a certain type of immune response to be able to stop that infection. They need what we call cytotoxic T cells that are able to target intracellular pathogens and antibodies that block the virus and stop it from then infecting other cells. Whereas bacteria, they're bigger. They're uh, We don't consider viruses living. I think it's quite a hard thing to get your head around, but they require other organisms to survive. Whereas a bacteria uh, is a single cell organism that can survive on its own. It can occupy an intracellular niche inside our cells or it can live in sort of intracellular spaces. Um, And when it's got that moist, um, comfortable, right temperature, cozy niche inside our body, it will start replicating. And so it requires a different type of immune response depending on whether it wants to infect inside our cells 
or outsider cells. And then you have the larger multicellular things like um, nematode worms and parasites, which again tend to be occupying outsider cells, but require different types of immune responses. So we have a real breadth of different sort of weapons our immune response can use because we have all these different types of potential threats that can infect our body. You mentioned the importance of gut health and and diversity of microbes in adulthood, at least. Uh, and, And that's something we'll hopefully explore a little bit more when we talk about food. I'm curious, while I've got you here at this point and we're talking about bacterial infections, what are your thoughts about antibiotics? I mean, clearly they're very important and and effective, but are they over-prescribed would be my first kind of question. And the second part would be, if we are experiencing a bacterial infection, how do we know if we need antibiotics versus kind of trusting our immune system to handle the infection on its own? Oh, that's a really good one. Um, I think that uh, antibiotics, if we look across history, there has been a step function improvement in our survival from infections since the introduction of antibiotics. The same with things like public sanitation, certain vaccination programs, all these broad public health things coupled with new developments and treatments like antibiotics has meant that, you know, no longer can cutting your finger end up with you dying because the infection's got a hold on you. Um, So they're great tools, but I think that... Certainly as a child, I remember they were dished out for everything. They didn't even wait around to see if that was viral or bacterial, because I guess that takes time. Um, And when kids are sick, um, there's often that urge to be a bit prophylactic. So we'll just give them a course of antibiotics, because then if it is a bacterial infection, we know that we can sort of have that safety net there. Nobody was thinking about the microbiome like 30, 40 years ago or even longer when um, antibiotics came onto the scene. It was after World War II. It was, you know, revolutionizing what people could do for for really, really sick patients. So, you know, people didn't die from infections like they had done previously. Um, But certainly they're overprescribed and certainly in children, um, it's it's something that um, I think is changing now, um, but I don't know that there. I think there's probably still a bit of an education piece because I I think a lot of family doctors are still under pressure from parents to prescribe them when you have a sick ch- child in front of you. Um, you just want them to be well again. Um, So I think that that's a big piece of what we've seen in terms of the erosion of the good microbes. Um, And there's, so, you know, when you look at the mouse studies, when you give a cage of identical mice, um, so they're in the same environment, they're inbred, genetically identical, you give them antibiotics and you look at their microbiome as it recovers. So you take it before, and then you look afterwards over the course of six months. Um, You see that those mice restore their microbiome in a completely random fashion. There's not like a specific pattern where you can say all mice are back to normal by three months. Um, It's it's, some mice never recover. Some mice, the the, um, antibiotics leave this huge 
gap where another microbe then becomes dominant. Um, some mi mice restore their microbiome fairly quickly. So if that's what's happening in a really controlled experimental setting, you can only imagine what's happening in humans, um, whereby we just don't know how well people are recovering from, from antibiotics. And that's obviously going to have a knock-on effect on our immune system because we know that this gut microbiome is such a key component of how well our immune system is performing. So what would your advice be? And actually, you may not have advice for someone else. So maybe I'll, I'll position this question relative to yourself. Let's say that you uh, had an infection, you thought it was a bacterial infection. What would make you more inclined to take antibiotics versus not taking them? I think if I, um, so your immune system needs time. So it takes around five to seven days to make those specific T cells and antibodies that are going to target that germ if your first line innate defense can't get a handle on it. So if time was passing and I had a bit of a fever um, and I was feeling really unwell, I think that would be a red flag to just go um, and and uh, get treatment with antibiotics. Um when my kids get sick, I, I really focus on things like rest uh, and nourishment um, and seeing how they do because you can almost assume that it's going to be some sort of routine childhood bug that they've picked up from school. So I definitely wouldn't rush, um, you know, I think you have to go with your intuition as a parent because it's very worrying if your child's sick. So I don't want to encourage people to not go and see their doctor. But I think don't go with the expectation that antibiotics are going to be the best thing. Maybe go with um, looking for other advice or that they can quickly check for what might be causing the infection. So I think the, the point being that there are various infections these germs that your body will come in contact with, that your body will respond to and defend against and essentially eradicate by itself. And sometimes we need a helping hand. Before we slide over to some of the practical uh, and more instructive uh, side of things here, I want to ask you a few questions about viruses. Um, of course, with COVID-19, there's been a lot of different opinions shared online um, about viruses, about vaccines. I haven't spoken about vaccines on this show, um, but given I'm sitting down with an immunologist today, it, it makes sense, uh, at least at a, a kind of surface a surface level here. Um, the first thing that, that I see coming up or one of, one of the things I see coming up frequently is this idea of germ versus terrain theory. And it seems to have gotten a little bit of traction online and, and I've seen various people uh, who appear quite confused by this. Um, I'm sure you've come across this. What would you like people to know about this germ versus terrain theory sort of debate? Yeah, that's, it's an interesting one. So germ theory is this idea that germs cause disease. This was quite profound a long time ago because before we had the tools to identify germs under the microscope, 
as a causative agent of someone getting sick. People thought that miasma made people sick. So this was like bad air. You know, it was kind of a bit hocus pocus. So germ theory was like, okay, wow, now we can see this microbe as a causative agent of why the person in front of me has like septicemia. Um, And so from there, we've evolved this idea that germs cause disease. But over time, we realize actually not all germs cause disease because 99% of the germs in our environment are not disease causing. They're part of these um, microbiota of our body and the environment that are very important for our health. And then on the other side, the terrain theory is that our bodies are the terrain. It's the receiver of those germs. Um, and we can create health by having a healthy terrain, which will resist the germs and resist infection. Now, I think that we have to move into a space maybe where we have this um, dual theory where there's these two contributors. So there's no denying that certain germs cause infectious diseases um, and will compromise the health of uh, even a healthy person because germs are very sneaky. They're evolving to try and find ways to get around our immune system. So even with the best immune defences, it's still normal to get sick every now and again. And the disease will be the result of the complex interplay between the pathogenic factors of that germ, but also the health of the terrain. So how healthy your body is when you get infected. So we we cannot, we have to guard against germs. That's why, you know, public health measures are important um, and accepting that germs spread where people are. But also we cannot neglect our own health um, because that's going to be a big part of that equation. And there's really interesting uh, data, this is before COVID actually, that shows when a host, when a person is malnourished, so certain um, uh, micronutrients are deficient, the immune system is compromised. So we know that because we need the full suite of all micronutrients. But this can impact the virus and how it leads to infect that host. In fact, certain viruses become more virulent, so more aggressive in their infection when people are deficient in certain micronutrients. And this is thought to be because there's higher levels of oxidative stress in the body. So it points to the importance of good nutrition, good terrain for the health of the host, but also how um, that virus is going to become maybe more aggressive and spread in the way it mutates and spreads to other people. So that's something that we knew about before COVID, but then obviously it's become more of a, um, a discussion point since COVID. So I think it's a bit of both. I think we can't deny infectious diseases exist and infect healthy people, but how we go into an infection can determine how uh, that will proceed. Yeah, I think most people will appreciate that. It doesn't actually sound so confusing when you put it like that. I'm not sure what all the talk is about uh, online. I think it's that, you know, like that need for black and white thinking that people have where it's like, no, it's like 5,000 shades of grey. I'm sure you're familiar with the nutrition world. It's the same. (laughs) Sure. The other one that comes up uh, a bit or I've seen recently is this idea of getting immunity from a vaccine versus natural immunity. And no doubt this is a very broad topic. So perhaps we we think about this within the context of, of COVID-19. And firstly, for those that are hearing uh, natural immunity for, for the first time, maybe we should just define what, what does that actually refer to or, or mean? And the, the second part 
to that question would be, is there any merit based on the data that you've read in the idea of not being vaccinated and being exposed to COVID-19 with regards to building a healthier immune system response? Yeah, that's a good question. It's going to be another one that I'm going to have to prefix with the it depends. Uh, First of all, all germs are unique. They'll have their unique suite of features, immune targets, evasion strategies. So we can't really uh, generalize what's better, natural versus acquired immunity, to all germs. So I just want to caveat that. Um, natural immunity is what we would develop in response with to an, to an infection without any intervention. So getting COVID, creating T and B cells and antibodies to COVID, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, um, and then you'll be left with some correlates of protection for a certain period of time. Uh, and then vaccine-induced immunity would be not exposing yourself to the virus, but exposing yourself to pieces of the virus in a vaccine. And there's also the other variable to consider is there's very different ways to manufacture a vaccine and get those bits of that virus to be shown to your immune system. Um, I think early on with COVID, there was a lot of focus on developing vaccines that focused on the spike protein. Um, And there was probably some people somewhere asking the question, shouldn't we also have a breadth of different antigens in that mix? So spike is part of the virus that the virus is using to enter our cells. The spike protein was chosen because studies were shown that it's it's immunogenic, so it induces an immune response. Particularly, it's good at inducing antibodies, which are going to block the spike, stopping that virus from entering our cells. So it's stopping the virus getting in. Um, But when we look at T-cell responses, um, which is a much harder thing to measure because it's a bit more involved than just antibodies, um, it might be that uh, we need different parts of the virus to get a good T-cell response. So I think that in some ways, vaccines can offer a benefit in that they're a more controlled way of activating the immune response to a very narrow repertoire of targets that have been shown to be immunogenic. But natural infection is going to expose your body to a breadth of different targets that might give you better T-cell responses. In terms of the durability of both, I think it's probably quite similar. And I don't think that's surprising because the airways are this tolerogenic environment um, it's really hard to to generate long-lived, robust memory responses. And again, it comes down to that immunological roulette. All these proteins, whether it's from a vaccine or from natural infection, are being chopped up and shown to your T-cells. T and it's kind of like speed dating. So your T-cells are going to be sampling that till one of them locks on and says, OK, I, I have a, a receptor that has a cognate interaction with that bit of that virus, whether it's from a vaccine or from a natural infection. And then it's going to produce this um, clonal response and start helping your B-cells make antibodies. Um, So in some cases, you might want a vaccine response because it's more targeted, but there's something to be said for natural immunity being more broad. And that's when it comes down to the German question. So you can't deny that like smallpox was eradicated because of vaccines. 
But also COVID is a respiratory virus. We just don't generally have good vaccines for respiratory viruses because they evolve, they mutate. You then have to constantly catch up. So it's kind of like there's different ways of thinking about it. I think what's more concerning is the sort of post-COVID long-term issues that are arising and whether perhaps that's worse with natural infection in some individuals. I think it's quite early on to be able to say... Have any researchers considered sort of two scenarios and compared, um, I mean, most people, uh, depending on what country they've been in, have been infected or will be infected, you know, probably at some stage in their life. I think most people kind of agree on that, right? Um, It's here to stay in some capacity. And as you say, it continues to kind of uh, mutate. But I'm wondering, with regards to this T-cell response, Is there a difference between, say, someone who was infected with COVID that wasn't vaccinated versus that person who is vaccinated but then is also infected with the full virus? At that point in time, um, is there a difference in terms of that kind of memory, that T-cell response between those two people? So vaccine followed by infection or just infection? Yeah, so comparing those two scenarios, one person who decides not to get vaccinated uh, becomes infected. The other person has their vaccination and then gets infected. And at that point, um, is there a difference in terms of that T-cell response? That's a good question. I know, I, I'm sure there are studies that have looked to that that I don't know off the top of my head, but I would imagine that the getting the vaccine, you're going to get some of that T-cell immunity and B antibody response to the spike protein or whatever antigens are in that particular vaccine. Then the getting the infection after that is going to be like a booster jab. So it's the only kind of appropriate way we can use that term immune boosting. So every time your immune system sees the same antigen or the same pathogen, it further refines this response. It, it takes the antibody genes and it mixes them up again until it gets better versions that, that stick harder and faster to the to the pathogen. So it's improving it and it um, it responds much quicker. It, the, the titers of antibodies go up. The T-cell response is going to improve. So every subsequent infection is going to improve the overall immune response. Um, so I'd imagine that they would have a better, if you went and looked at the correlates of protection in that person, it might be slightly better than a person who's only had the infection once and never had a vaccine. I'm sure that's been done, but I don't know. Uh, and people can find uh, find that online. And <laughs> We can pop a, a link to any studies that maybe we, we can get our hands on between this recording and this episode going up into the show notes for anyone that wants to read further there. Um, but that's all of the, the questions I have on, on vaccines. So uh, we, we got through that. Let's change gears slightly here. I know that we're going to speak about anti-inflammatory dietary patterns and that's something that you speak about in your book and, and inflammation comes up a lot. Um, usually inflammation is spoken about in a very negative way. Um, but uh, as I understand and in reading your book, we need inflammation in order to survive. Um, so within certain contexts, inflammation can be beneficial. In other contexts, it can be deleterious. Talk us through that. When is inflammation healthy versus unwanted and, and problematic? 
Yeah, inflammation in a healthy sense is the acute version, so the short-term version. So, you know, you um, you cut your finger, it has those cardinal signs of inflammation, redness, swelling, heat, pain. Uh, that's the sign that your immune system's raising the red flag to call for backup, get all the right cells in there to try and heal and repair the tissue. And so it's a cyclic process. It has the beginning, the middle, and the end. And there's a particular point in the inflammatory process where there's a switch, a cosinoid switch it's called, where your um, immune cells, the neutrophils and macrophages, which are the sort of key orchestrators of that acute inflammation, will switch. And instead of producing pro-inflammatory mediators like prostaglandins, they actually start to utilize pro-resolving mediators. So they use the omega-3 fats in their membrane and they're the raw materials to make these pro-resolving mediators, which turn off inflammation and start to resolve it. And the idea is to bring the tissue back to homeostasis. So this is happening, for example, if you cut your finger or if you have a, a sore throat and you get that swelling, or even if you know you were to sprain your ankle, there's no infection presence, but there's tissue damage. So the European system is also able to respond to damaged tissue in the absence of, of infection with inflammation. And again, it's got this beginning, middle and end. And when Inflammation is not resolving. Uh, when it starts to become chronic or intermittent or relapsing, then it becomes problematic because as much as it's helpful, it's helpful because it's producing a lot of toxic things that are um, going to damage your tissues. There's a little bit of collateral damage by means of getting to that point of resolution. So whether that's expelling the germ or repairing the tissue, there's a little bit of like remodeling that's going on. So you can imagine if you have constant levels of inflammation in the body, you're almost constantly having that kind of wound healing um, activated. And that can be anywhere that the, the inflammation is located. And it tends to be, be what we call systemic. So if you had... Um, uh, inflammation located coming from the gut, for example, or a chronic infection, it could leach into the blood and then it's going to switch on those blood vessel walls, cause damage there and cause damage throughout the body as it's moving around. I think most people can kind of visualise this idea of roll your ankle and you get you get some acute inflammation, um, but it's it's chronic inflammation that I think is harder to kind of visualize in terms of what's the downstream cause of that. You haven't you haven't tripped over and and sprained your ankle, and you kind of you've you've just mentioned there um, that sort of gut lining barrier and and how that could uh, affect um, inflammation through the body. But I'm just interested in breaking this down a little bit more for folks in terms of when we hear this this sort of phrase, chronic inflammation, it's a hallmark feature of chronic disease, right? We hear that all the time and um, I've used that myself and it, it is a hallmark feature of cardiovascular disease, dementia, um, obesity. We, we see it consistently and, and I know this is something that you would have thought a lot about, but again, it's, it's a tough one to, to kind of to explain. But what, what causes this chronic inflammation and when you're thinking about these disease states, is it the is it the inflammation that that comes first, or is it the pathology and the disease state and the inflammation is downstream of that? Oh, that's a great one. I think what causes it 
there's a range of different possible reasons. Um, so infection, chronic infections is one because we just know that the presence of microbes, infectious microbes with those uh, patterns on their surface is going to act like a continual activator on the immune system. So some infections are long-term chronic. They, they hide out in our body uh, and they cause that continual activation of our immune system. Um, the other way that germs could be, in fact, causing chronic inflammation is from the gut. So our gut is home to this collection of good microbes. So the microbiota that we've spoken about has been so important for educating and, and regulating our immune response. But those microbes are only useful if they're in the right location of the body. If they start going trespassing through the gut barrier into the underlying tissue and then perhaps into the blood and beyond, or bits of microbes start to do that, then you end up with a situation where that's going to switch on the immune response because they each contain little barcodes, molecular barcodes on their surface that are going to uh, turn on the inflammatory response of our immune cells. So I'd say the gut is probably a huge um, source of inflammation in some cases because the gut barrier is so thin and it's one cell thick, it's very delicate. That's so that it can facilitate its function. So form follows function, it's for um, absorption of nutrients. But it means that we have to have that barrier integrity because if we don't, those good um, bacteria become um, annoying, irritating bacteria for our immune system. So that's another source. I think people have to maybe do a little audit of their life to try and figure out where the inflammation could be coming from. Another one is body composition, something that I'm really passionate about. Um, we know that um, adiposity, so the particularly things like visceral adiposity, um, that's the fat tissue on our body, that's a, a home to lots of immune cells. It's now considered an immunologically active organ, as is our muscle tissue. When that balance in the body composition changes, so we end up with too much adiposity, um, we know that a few things happen. So those fat cells um, start to become enlarged, and that is a sort of sign of metabolic stress, which can trigger particular um, uh, inflammatory pathways leading to raised levels of inflammation. Um, and then also the saturated fatty acids can sort of leak out of those fat cells when they're a bit stressed and those can directly activate some molecular pathways that lead to inflammation. And then on the other hand, we have muscle, which is also an immunologically active organ. And when we don't have enough muscle relative to fat, we're not getting that counterbalance, anti-inflammatory balance coming through. Then, you know, we have the whole gamut of other things. So um, stress can uh, uh, be a, a trigger for inflammation. Um, um, poorly controlled blood sugar, uh, and you start to get glycination of different proteins um, from, from raised levels of blood sugar. Um, then all the whole, you know, range of things that can upset uh, the microbiota in the gut that can then affect that downstream pathway. And then just not having enough of the anti-inflammatory stuff coming in. So, you know, if our, our diets are really devoid of, of fibre or containing um, things that are quite irritating to the gut, um, you know, it's then you've got that, that trickle-down effect. 
you know, and it's all interlinked once you start to get into it because you think, well, if you're sleeping badly, that could be um, leading to uh, raised inflammation. But if you're sleeping badly, you're probably a little bit stressed and eating badly, which are then coming into the picture as well. So I don't think that we should look for one sole trigger, but we should be doing that full audit across. And I think a lot of times people are like, well, I'm doing everything right, but I'm still getting, you know, symptoms of inflammation, of of chronic low-grade inflammation. And I think just existing in the modern world, it makes it really hard not to inadvertently be triggering um, those pathways of inflammation in the body because it's it's just the way our, our modern world is constructed. Okay, so trying to focus on a little bit less stress. It sounds like resistance exercise is is going to be helpful for our immune system with regards to body composition and uh, building muscle, but also you mentioned adiposity. So um, I'm sure that some some type of cardiovascular type exercise is, is going to be beneficial for our immune system, but, but also uh, many aspects of our health. And uh, it sounds like nourishing our microbes is going to be important through our diet as well as focusing on sleep. These are the pillars, as you say, that most people hear time uh, and time again. But I, I, I really like the fact that you said we can't just silo these out um, and that each of these does uh, or can affect the other. Let's dive into some of these a little bit more uh, here. And I think chronic inflammation was a nice kind of segue to get us here. So if we're starting with diet, uh, I know that you and I share a very similar philosophy when it comes to diet. And I, I love that you had a, a very strong emphasis on, um, on helping the reader understand the importance of dietary patterns. And it's not that you you didn't go into single foods and nutrients, you did, and, and there's, there's some important reasons for that. But I love that you highlighted dietary pattern first and foremost. So maybe we start there. What does a, a dietary pattern look like that is conducive to building, supporting a, a well-balanced immune system? Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably a few years ago when I went into uh, the research around food, based on what what I was doing in my actual research around fiber, I I kind of expected to come out with a short list of of immune-boosting foods, but it just doesn't exist. Um, You know, food is doing a lot of things to our immune system. It's providing the raw materials to make the cells and antibodies. It's providing the energy and uh, immune responses are quite energetically costly. It's providing key nutrient cofactors for all the various chemical reactions uh, it's supporting anti-inflammatory, antioxidant pathways, and some food even have antimicrobial properties as well. And it can epigenetically manipulate genes involved in that whole immune balance equation. Um, so it's doing a lot of things, but it comes back to the overall pattern time and time again comes out in the research. And a, a dietary pattern that's healthy is one that's, to me, first and foremost, means you have a good relationship with food. And you're able to make those um, habitual choices about foods that are nourishing and satisfying. And it's doable and sustainable and it's customizable. I think people, when they hear a dietary pattern, uh, they might think, oh, but I 
that's too broad. But actually, that means that it's it's what you're doing most of the time. It's not that you went out last night and, and had like fast food with friends because maybe that's nurturing your immune system in a more social and emotional well-being way. Uh, it's not just about the nutrition. So overall, a dietary pattern, as I see it, is something that's focused on whole, unprocessed or minimally processed foods. So it's fruits and vegetables, whole grains, nuts, legumes. It's trying to retain the fiber and the whole portfolio of beneficial nutrients within the foods. So it's kind of uh, building your own immune health bank account. So helping strengthen the body barriers, provide those micronutrients for all those chemical reactions and provide the fuel to meet your body's demands so that you can triage into mounting a correct immune response when you need it. So yeah, I love the idea of a pattern. I think it's it's like I say, it's freeing, but equally it's also... Um, uh, a bit vague for people sometimes, maybe. I think the way I see it is uh, looking at the processing of food is quite a useful tool. Um, and I mentioned in the book about the Nova food processing scale, which is a recently, um, a recently developed tool, which I think, um, you know, the way I describe it, so say you, you didn't know what was meant by an ultra processed food. So this is a unique category of of processed food. It's not like tin tomatoes or, or you know, butter or yogurt or some kind of um, culinary ingredient that's got some processing. It's ultra processed foods are those foods that will contain um, ingredients that you wouldn't necessarily have in your home kitchen if you were to make that food at home. So if you were to make bread at home, you might choose like salt, flour, water, yeast, but if you go and buy a, a loaf of bread in your local store that's got a really long shelf life and you look on the list of ingredients, it might have some kind of industrial sounding names, um, emulsifiers, different agents to try and give it a certain texture, shelf life, that kind of thing. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily have those just handy in your kitchen cupboard if you were going to make bread at home. So that can be quite a useful tool if people are worried about identifying what's a sort of minimally processed food versus one of these ultra processed foods. And ultra processed foods, they're problematic for our immune system for many reasons. But first and foremost, they're really tasty. We just want to eat them. Once we start, it's very hard to stop. And they take up space in our diet for more healthful foods. Um, and they, they play around with our satiety signals. Um, they tend to be higher in things like salt, which can be problematic for things like the, the gut barrier. They tend to be higher in sugar, which can be problematic for things like the um, um, blood sugar response, and that has a knock-on effect on our immune system, and things like saturated fats, which can di directly turn on things like the inflammasome, which is a, one of the molecular mechanisms that we activate inflammation in the body. So going for a diet pattern um, and really getting working that out in your mind, I think is a really useful tool where you avoid those ultra processed foods, many of which might be marketed as healthy. I mean, this is something that's coming up again and again uh, in the research. And we live in a food environment where it's very much dominated by big food. And we, we can't really have faith in the food environment anymore because it's very confusing. It's almost like we're pathologizing 
ever feeling hungry because there's, you know, the snack culture, everything's wrapped in single-use plastic. It's just like, I don't know, it really stresses me out <laughs> because I wish we could do something to make life easier for people to make those decisions. But when you're busy and you're working and then all the food that's available to you is the stuff that's ultra processed, it's really hard to 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 eat well like the modern world does not make it easy mm. to eat well yeah i certainly agree with that um i'm interested do you have a, a sense or uh, has there been any research that you've seen that has looked at let's say someone shifts away from a more western style diet that is very rich in the foods that you're talking about and they adopt more of a dietary pattern like you're talking about. It's more based on whole foods. It's very, very rich in in fiber and, and phytonutrients. What's the kind of effect that that could have on inflammation? And it may be a silly question because we've already established it's hard to measure um, inflammation. Um, so I may have just answered my own question there, but I'm just wondering how, how uh, influential these dietary changes can be in terms of modulating the immune system? I think it's it's profound. I think that's why we see um, the data from the Mediterranean diet. So I think it's important to stress that the Mediterranean diet is not the only anti-inflammatory diet pattern, but it's one that's very well studied. Um, and when you look at what a Mediterranean diet is, you could really apply that to any minimally processed sort of traditional dietary pattern anywhere in the world. There might be different foods that come in depending on geographically where you are, but it's just generally getting that breadth of um, uh, healthy fats, uh, good quality sources of protein and fiber, the breadth of phytonutrients, um, the whole grains, the minimally processed um, fiber-rich foods, uh, herbs and spices, that sort of thing. And I think it's it's almost like an inoculation against the inevitable chronic inflammation. So anti-inflammatory diet patterns seem to inoculate against things like rheumatoid arthritis, so an autoimmune disease. And that's because um, a lot of the components in that diet, particularly around the fiber, are influencing that regulatory arm of the immune system. So epigenetically turning on um, the genes that are needed to create what we call regulatory T cells, which are switching off any immune cells that are going to go awry and start responding to the wrong thing, whether that's autoimmune disease or allergy. Um, when you when a person has a chronic inflammatory condition and then switches to an anti-inflammatory diet pattern, theoretically, that may have benefits. But I think on the ground running, people come up, up against issues in that they, they switch to this anti-inflammatory diet pattern, but their gut's not really able to cope. So they're like, oh, if, if I start putting legumes in there and beans and pulses, you know, the body's saying no. Uh, and that digestive distress can sometimes cause a lot of psychological stress uh, and worry. And so I think that every dietary um, study that I've come across that looks at inflammatory disease and diet patterns, it's always the the, the guidance is to have an anti-inflammatory diet pattern. But as an individual who's maybe listening to this, who's thinking tomorrow they're going to clear out the kitchen cupboards and and start this, it's it. I think what's missing is that it can take an adaptation period to get there. Um, 
you know, the gut microbiome could be part of the problem. Therefore, uh, if you already have an established inflammatory condition, therefore it might not be very receptive to suddenly changing your diet. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. And I I do wonder if that's why some of these more animal-based kind of very low-carb, low-fiber carnivore diets have developed a bit of traction in certain circles where someone has a very damaged, disrupted microbiome, perhaps they do feel better. I mean, there's enough people following these diets to sort of say, well, they're they're definitely feeling better in the short term. I don't think they're lying. my question to you would be if uh, fiber, and I did um, ask the Sonnenbergs this question as well, um, but if they are struggling with fiber, like the Sonnenbergs showed in, in actually in one of their studies with a percentage of, of people who didn't respond so great to the addition of, of fiber, um, do you have any helpful tips for someone that's is in that position, is struggling, but but is hearing you and thinking, you know what, I do want to to eat more plant foods, more fiber. I would just like a, a bit of a protocol. Yeah, I think that, you know, like yourself, I when I first heard that people were just eating meat, <laughs> kind of stopped me in my tracks. But uh, having worked with many people who have went on these really extreme exclusion diets, because the, every time they exclude something, they get some kind of symptomatic relief. It's almost like, oh, it's food that's a problem. You know, we're pointing the finger at food. It's like, well, poor food, what did that like lentil do? It's it's not the problem. It's it, it comes down to that terrain conversation earlier. It's it's the terrain of your body that's the problem. Your body should be able to accept these foods that are healthful. But it's not. It's causing you some distress because the problems within you, that's not to say that that's a kind of personal responsibility blame thing. But it's, you know, all of the the decades of your life that have gone before have maybe eroded the the communities of your um, gut microbes to a state where they're not able to cope with digesting that plant fiber and material because actually as humans we're not very equipped to break down a lot of that we rely on the genetic material within our gut microbes to do the heavy lifting with that so when it's an intolerance so we are no longer tolerant to a food not a food allergy just to make that distinction it means that there's going to be a threshold of tolerance so that means complete exclusion is not what we want to do long term. We want to build up to that threshold. And I think that there's a few things that have to come into play. So you're sitting down to have your meal and you've never had, um, I don't know, a, 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 let's say a chili con carne, but full of lentils and beans where you're removing some of the meat um, and you've added loads of vegetables. Uh, and it's the first time in, in three decades that you've eaten something like that you've gone from like zero to a hundred overnight. You kind of need to dial it back, start with a tiny spoonful on your plate and then slowly, slowly be be prepared to put in the work and the time to help your body adjust. And you will know when you reach the edge of your tolerance because you get that immediate feedback, the bloating, the uncomfortable feeling in the gut. But just know that those gut microbes are are your personalized pharmacy. You know, they're breaking down that fiber 
they're producing things like short-chain fatty acids, which are so key to immune regulation. Like I cannot um, emphasize it enough. You know, they're producing things like butyrate, which is strengthening the gut barrier. They're having direct effects on that anti-inflammatory immune response, making your, yourself armies of, of regulatory T cells. Uh, and this has all been shown mechanistically, but also, um, you know, looking across a large populations of um, of um, humans. And I just think it's, you know, if we've lost that tolerance, it, it needs to be that slow and steady getting there. Digestion starts in the mouth. You know, how many of us are really chewing the food properly? How many of us are sitting down, feeling relaxed, having that, um, uh, uh, tuning in with our nervous system, which is very much in collaboration with our immune system. They're both sensing systems, thinking about how you're feeling uh, and responding appropriately. Um, and that's important for the gut barrier. Uh, you know, we're rushing around, we're very stressed. This can open up the gut barrier. Look, you know, there's so many connections now between different ways that we go through the day with exercise, with stress, with just being busy, the way we were eating, the environments that we're in that is having an effect on, on the gut. So we have to really broaden the lens. Yes, it's about getting that fiber in, but it's also about the broader context in which we're we're living our lives and consuming those important plant foods. Yeah, it's such a, this is for me, such an interesting thing to talk about because I'm a big believer in listening to your body. I think that's important. And I also think that there's a role for personalized nutrition. I think it's easy to start to think that, well, we have studies and studies show this, it's black and white, but studies are not perfect and they're often averages and none of us are the, the average. Um, I think where it gets really interesting is being able to listen to your body, receive a signal and then interpret that. And that's where I think we can get tripped up. You know, if we, if we think about the gym, for example, if we went into gym, we did a, a workout, we felt a bit sore the next day. Um, if we were kind of unaware of the benefits of working out and the gym, we may receive that signal and say, gym's not for me. <laughs> um, and, and not realize that, no, we, we need to adapt. Our body will adapt and respond. And, um, you know, it's never as painful uh, as it is when you walk into the gym for the first time and you haven't lifted a weight in a, a long time. Um, so I think that's a, a good reminder. Thank you for kind of summarizing that. Something else in, in the book that I, I really enjoyed was your, your writing on phytonutrients and, and you've spoken about those a couple of times here um, and you described the kind of difference between essential vitamins and minerals and this idea of long latency deficiency versus short latency deficiency. I might get you to kind of give us a, a brief uh, overview of of why you thought that was important to share. Yeah, I mean that I guess was drawn out of um, you know a lot of the uh, books on the immune system that are in the public domain are quite outdated, and they'll list every key micronutrient. So we'll have like vitamin C. It's found in these foods. It does this for your immune system. Then it moves on to the next vitamin, the mineral. And I just found that all really boring because I was. <laughs> Kind of like, is that helpful to people? Uh, we because we essentially we do live uh, if somewhere like the UK or Australia, where these so-called short latency deficiency diseases are are, are now fairly rare thanks to um, 
improvements in public health and, and the food system and that sort of thing. So short latency deficiency is, um, uh, an example would be pellagra, beriberi scurvy, rickets. So these are conditions that really quickly arise after a person becomes overtly deficient in a single essential nutrient. So vitamin C deficiency would lead to scurvy. And then we have this kind of um, idea of long latency deficiency diseases. So this is um, where it's happening in an insidious way over a long period of time. And I, I sort of feel like phytonutrients fall into this category. So we don't have a recommended daily allowance for how many polyphenols we need to be eating every day. If you don't eat polyphenols, you don't get a polyphenol deficiency over a short term, but you might get a long latency condition later on in life. So you, it might lead to higher levels of oxidative stress in the body, uh, immune deregulation, raised um, unwanted inflammation. So these are kind of, they're the longevity compounds, I like to think that, of them as. They're, they're setting us up for, for long-term health. So, you know, if you don't eat them now, you in a year from now, you might not suffer the consequences. But in 10 or 20 years from now, that's when you might see the, the, the problems arise. And I guess it comes back to, you know, eat, not eating any plants at all, any fruit and vegetables. You might get away with it for a short time, but I'd be quite curious to see what's going on decades from now. And these um, phytonutrients, you know, they're doing so many amazing things. I mean, there's there's tens of thousands of them. We just are scratching the surface. And there's now evidence that they're actually acting as prebiotics. So they're really important for nurturing the communities of microbes in our gut um, as well, which it just, you know, it blows my mind. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fascinating that our understanding of kind of food for, for microbes and what acts as food, um, you know, that's an emerging field of science. And as you say, it's not just prebiotic fiber, but it's also polyphenols that sort of act as, as fertilizer for that community of microbes. And I, I love that idea of thinking about phytonutrients, not necessarily as kind of compounds that we need for survival, but compounds that can help improve our health span, um, which is, is, you know, really important. And of course, what all of us, or at least most of us, are, are, are trying to aim for a longer health span, uh, which is the, the number of years of life we, we have without being impacted by um, disease for those that are kind of hearing that for the first time. Um, while I have you on phytonutrients and polyphenols, and I'm just loving having a, a very well-read uh, immunologist on the show here. Um, something else that comes out of the that kind of low-carb animal-based crowd, and I'm not picking on them. Um, you know, I have friends in that community. It just fascinates me. There does seem to be this idea, and I, I wonder if there's any merit to it, that, uh, you know, often these, um, many of these kind of polyphenols, which uh, you wrote about in the book, contribute to that bitter taste and they can discourage um, insects and animals from eating the plant, you know, part of the plant's kind of own defense system. Um, and on social media, you'll, you'll find certain people saying, well, these are, you know, actually toxic in, in any dose and that we should remove these from our diet to avoid exposure to these compounds. Um, whereas I know in the book, your view is that these, that exposure is actually beneficial for, for human health. 
Can you share a little bit of your thoughts on, on that view that if these are toxins and they are there to fend off animals, humans being uh, an animal should avoid them? What do you think about that? I mean, I think that, you know, as a human, I'm a lot bigger than an insect. So <laughs> an insect nibbling on a plant and getting a, uh, a dose of these uh, toxic phytonutrients might, might leave it feeling quite unwell. But um, it's all about that sort of dose response. If I'm sitting down to a meal that's full of all these different plant compounds um, and, and eating them together in, in the sort of symphony, they're going to work collaboratively and they're in a, a physiological dose, then it's probably going to encourage the um, uh, resiliency of my cells um, and actually, there's some uh, data on how bitter flavors are quite important for our immune system. So the bitterness is coming from these plant compounds. And we have bitter receptors on our immune cells, so not just in our mouth for tasting. But these seem to have profound influence on cells of the immune system. They deliver sort of antioxidant signals, anti-inflammatory signals, and even have sort of prebiotic properties. Um, so I think that even there's actual data showing that people who uh, are more sensitive to bitter tastes are more likely to um, attain longevity because they uh, seem to be their immune cells seem to be more sensitive to the bitterness as well. So I think the food industry puts a lot of effort into removing bitterness um, to make things really palatable so we get unaccustomed to it. And I also think that eating that in food is um, different from taking a concentrated dose of that in a supplement. So some might be good, but more might not necessarily be better. Mm. Do you think that some of those bitter foods begin to taste better or we appreciate them more when you remove some of the hyperpalatable foods from the diet? I definitely think it's something that can be um, trained. So... Um, you know, we get that message to eat more veggies. That's in all the public health guidelines. But when we have more palatable foods on offer, you know, our, our kind of monkey brain kicks in and we just go straight for that. I think we each have varying sensitivity to bitter flavors and this will play a key role in influencing which foods we consume. I know as a mother of two, two kids that if I put bitter foods in front of them or like an ice cream and sweets, I know what they'll go for because... That's kind of, I don't know, we, don't, we seem to as humans not have that sort of regulatory thing to stop us, um, which is fine as a one-off. But I think that when you have a food environment like we do currently, then it's uh, it's really hard to sort of force yourself to have a, some radicchio or something, you know, really bitter greens when you don't necessarily need to have that if you've got out of the habit of, of um, finding that pleasant. So as a mother... Any inside tips? How do we how do we get foods like dark leafy greens or even some of the cruciferous vegetables? Two food groups that I want to speak to you a little bit about. Um, I understand we're approaching two hours, so we can maybe rapid fire through a few of those. But but are there any uh, tricks uh, that you might have up your sleeve that have worked for you to to have your family eat more of these kind of more bitter foods? Oh, yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. It gets harder as they get older. So my kids are twins, they're seven. I would say that for mothers and fathers with really young kids, 
enjoy the fact that you create their food environment when they're very small, because when they go out into the big wide world and they realize that there's a lot more hyperpalatable foods on offer, it's it's difficult to then create the argument that they should sit down and have their, um, you know, less exciting veggies, etc. So, you know, the food environment around us isn't going to change overnight. Um, I would just say create your own food environment at home as much as you can. This is what we do at home. When we go out to a party, to a friend's house, to a restaurant, we might do something different. But the habitual meals that are eaten at home are going to be focused around, you know, the anti-inflammatory diet patterns, so the minimally processed foods, because fiber is important for kids as much as it's important for us. Maybe even more so because we want to really cultivate that little microbial garden in their gut um, from that early age. Um, Continual exposure is really important. So if your child says, I don't like broccoli, don't stop putting broccoli on their plate. And there's a big issue around food waste and that kind of conversation, which is really difficult. You just get really creative with making stuff out of your kids' leftovers um, so that it doesn't go to waste. Um, Continual exposure, get them involved in the kitchen and growing if you can. So for me, that's I found that really, really important. So we have a tiny um, veg patch in our garden. It doesn't matter what you're growing. It doesn't even matter if it's successful, but digging their hands in the dirt, getting them used to seeing where their food is coming from. And that educating piece. So, you know, if we're in a supermarket and they want to buy the the candy wrapped in single-use plastic, but then we've just been doing a beach clean, we live by the beach, and talking about what plastic does to our ocean, then they're connecting the dots and they can be more informed and making a decision if they want to put their buying power into something that could potentially harm the environment. Because I think, you know, our health is only as good as the planet's health. So that's kind of something my kids have found more exciting as they've got older and kind of then they've got the agency to decide. Great tips. Um, I have a a two and a half year old nephew and uh, he came and he was staying with us uh, a couple of weeks ago now. So I I saw firsthand how tricky it can be. Um, You can have the very best intentions, but kids can be a tricky bunch. So I certainly take my hat off to to any parents out there. you make specific mention um, in and amongst you know your recommendations to incorporate a lot of color and that, that old age old saying of eat the rainbow and then fruits and veg. You, you make specific recommendations for trying to have a serving of dark leafy greens um, per day and then also trying to lean into some of those sulfur rich foods like the cruciferous vegetables and also the, the alliums like garlic and onion. I'm interested if you were to kind of talk to these two uh, sort of food groups in particular, why are they ones that you sort of emphasized and and helpful when it comes to immune health? Yeah, that's a, um, you know, leafy greens are important for uh, the variety of um, micronutrients they contain. So um, vitamin A, magnesium, folate, but also um, supporting uh, epigenetic, uh, epigenetic regulations that's switching on and off of genes through supporting this process of methylation. They also contain many phytonutrients that have been shown to reduce things like oxidative stress and also stimulate the production of new immune cells from the bone marrow. So almost having a rejuvenating effect on the immune system. Another thing that makes them so special is that um, they're packed with nitrates, which are converted to nitric oxide, which 
I would argue, comes under the umbrella of your immune system because it's antimicrobial um, and it's been uh, shown to inactivate viruses. So that's really important, um, uh, and particularly in respiratory health. It also is important for our blood vessel health, um, maintaining healthy blood pressure and all of those uh, metabolic benefits like supporting physical activity, which then obviously supports your immune system. I think that, you know, we should try and aim for at least one portion a day. It's really almost quite easy if you consider that you can take a whole giant bag of leafy greens, but those they'll shrink down when you cook. So it's easier to achieve that target. And then sulfur-rich vegetables like the crucifers and the alliums, um, sulfur is an essential thing that we need to consume from our diet. Um, and it's one of the most abundant minerals in the body. Um, it's really important to get it from um, fruits and vegetables. You can also get it from meat, but it's in a kind of different format. Um, Sulfur-containing compounds like the glucosinolates, which are going to be turned into isothiocyanates in the body. Um, perhaps some of the listeners have heard of sulforaphane, which is a key example of this. It's been very well studied. It's quite instrumental in immune function, as well as switching on um, certain antioxidant genes, reducing unwanted inflammation. And it seems to be associated with reducing risk of chronic health conditions. Um, so cruciferas and alliums are kind of a unique uh, source of these. Um, we can sort of in, include them in our diet in different ways. I know there's a the, the big uh, idea around sprouting broccoli because it's very concentrated, but I think just we think more broadly about just getting these into our diet through different types of cruciferous and, and allium vegetables is going to just bring a diversity of benefits. And then we have something called indole-3-carbonol, -carbon which is really important. Um, it's coming from these um, um, cruciferous vegetables and it's triggering something called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor on special immune cells in our gut uh, and these um, immune cells are kind of patrolling that barrier, really uh, important for regulating its integrity. Um, so getting indole-3-carbonyl from these plants is going to be really important for um, the integrity of that barrier. But also this, this receptor, um, the aryl hydrocarbon receptor, is very susceptible to, to um, unfavorable toxins in our environment. So it's important that we um, stimulate it with the uh, indole-3-carbonyl from these vegetables um, to sort of block that uh, from responding to sort of toxins in the environment too. And you note in your book, and I think it's a, a good reminder, uh, perhaps not paramount. I mean, what's most important is just eating these things regularly, consistently. But uh, you did have a reminder in there about the, the benefit of cutting some of these foods, slicing them and allowing them to sit for a few minutes before cooking. Yeah, yeah, the sort of hack and hold method. Um, I'm sure people have come across that with things like garlic. So you're, you know, you're going to grate or chop your garlic and then just leave it sit for a few minutes and it allows that chemical reaction to take place. Also things like chewing is going to help activate that or gen real gentle steaming um, for a few minutes is going to help activate but not over um, overdo the, the reaction. So you get the real benefit of some of these um, uh, key compounds. Yeah, I had uh, Jed Fay. Uh, PhD on uh, a few weeks back. So if anyone's wanting to kind of listen to a bit more information, 
uh, about sulforaphane. That's a that's an episode that's kind of dedicated uh, to that. I've really been enjoying recently uh, baked cauliflower, and um, I was down at the grocery store and I found. I'm not sure. Have you ever had the yellow or the purple cauliflower? Have you seen that? I haven't. I see them occasionally. Yeah, they're sometimes quite rare. Yeah. I'm not sure if the nutrition's any different, but I thought they looked quite neat. And I've just been really enjoying, uh, so baked cauliflower with some olive oil and then putting herbs and spices. It's so simple, um, but you cook it long enough to get it, you know, sort of soft um, and it's delicious. Yeah, I think it all counts towards the diversity. So the same vegetable, but in different colors, eating the stem and the leaves as well, because often a lot of these compounds are more concentrated in that part. We know that olive oil can really help with the um, the uh, bioavailability of some of these um, uh, polyphenols and various different phytonutrients, particularly things like the carotenoids. So uh, cooking tomatoes with olive oil can lead to like, four or five times increases in lycopene in the blood. So using that sort of harmony, the synergy of foods that stand the taste, the test of time, you know, gently roasting with herbs, spices for the extra flavor, extra phytonutrients, the olive oil to help with the, um, the, the uptake um, in the gut. I think it's, you know, sometimes the classics are the best. There's a reason that they stand the test of time. And on the topic of dark leafy greens, and I think this may well uh, relate back to the immune system, there's quite a lot of data. It is observational, but it's consistent. A number of different researchers that have looked at the protective effects of dark leafy greens for neurodegenerative conditions and and folks who regularly consume dark leafy greens often have um, uh, brain function that is younger to their peers who are not yeah, regularly eating dark leafy greens and um, given that inflammation is a hallmark sort of feature of those neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's dementia, potentially that's one possible kind of explanation for that association that exists. All that to say, um, I also wrote in my book to to try and have one um, salad a day. I think that's a, a good idea. So um, I was glad to see that you, you shared that advice in yours. Um, just quickly, I've got a couple more questions about food here. Um, you also spoke about beta-glucans and um, these compounds that are found in, in mushrooms uh, and fungi. And I don't hear many people talking about these. Um, you know, I had, I had seen various brands or supplements out there um, that had beta-glucans in their formulation, talking about the immunity benefits. But, but I'm interested just if we're thinking about mushrooms here and the, this compound beta-glucans that they contain, why are these beneficial uh, for our immune system? Yeah, so these, these are kind of falling broadly under the category of um, micronutrients, so myco as in not micro, but um, the fungi and yeast version of a phytonutrient. Um, and beta-glucans are probably the most well-studied of all these micronutrients with many established immune-enhancing effects and um most of this is sort of mechanistic work, uh, but we do know that many of our immune cells have receptors specifically that will recognize these fungal beta-glucans, um, which really improve resistance to infection and possibly have a role in cancer prevention too. 
So I think that mushrooms are a great addition to anyone's diet. They're also a source of protein. Um, a lot of people, it's an acquired taste, which is perhaps why we see a lot of these functional mushroom powders. I think if you can get access to the the real thing uh, and you enjoy cooking it and there's dishes where you enjoy consuming it, then that's, you know, you don't need to shell out for sometimes quite expensive mushroom powders. But I think they're a great little way to sort of sprinkle on a meal to just add that a little bit more um, nutrition. Um, I think that it's going to be a space where we see a lot more coming out um, because they are such key modulators of the immune response. Talk to me about animal foods and immune health. I know that you sort of mentioned um, a couple before, uh, are are there any particular animal foods that promote good immune health? And sort of the second part of that question, if someone isn't eating these, what nutrients or foods should they perhaps focus on elsewhere to, to ensure that they're covered? Yeah, well, this is an interesting one. I think perhaps we look to animal foods as a source of protein primarily in someone's diet. So if we think about what protein's doing for your uh, immune system, it's a real cornerstone of a good immune response because it's producing the building blocks to make new immune cells and antibodies. And whenever we have an immune response, we have a huge um, uh, need, increased need for all these building blocks. Um, and we know that protein malnutrition worldwide is actually one of the leading causes of immune deficiency. So not having enough protein in your diet is setting you up for uh, immune deficiency, increasing your risk of infection, um, possible uh, cancers and certain inflammatory diseases. So, of course, meat and animal products can be a source of getting all those amino acids that we need. Protein in the diet can also help with um, satiety, appetite regulation, blood sugar control. Those are all important in the bigger picture of what our immune system is doing. Um, and as we get older, we experience sarcopenia. So this is age-related muscle loss and dietary protein plays a really important role in offsetting that along with things like resistance exercise. I, I think it doesn't necessarily matter. I think it's really hard from the studies to pick out whether it's more important to get it from animals or humans. I think animal protein will come with some uh, additional benefits like it will contain certain micronutrients and it will con contain um, maybe some more of the essential building blocks than certain um, plant sources. But equally, plant sources are bringing all that dietary fibre in. Uh, sorry, yes, plants are <laughs> getting myself confused. Plant sources are a great um, source of the dietary fibre for the gut. So... I think if you have a person who's got a really dialed in plant um, um, focused diet and is making sure that they're covering all those building blocks, all those individual amino acids, then that's going to be a great way to get what you need to support your immune system. But equally, if you're including some meat in there, I think if we're also being careful about including plant rich diversity, and we're including, um, uh, we're, we're being savvy on things like saturated fat, then that's also going to be a, a good way to get those key inputs to the immune system. But I think it's hard in the research to unpick, you know, the, the overall picture of someone's diet. Are they, if they're eating meat, are they also eating like 
ultra-processed foods, that kind of thing. It's really hard to then get down to saying what is superior. I just think we shouldn't put all our focus on protein coming from animal foods because plant sources of protein are so good for supporting the, the microbes in our gut, which are so important for um, um, the immune system. But you might have to be a little bit more savvy on what you're doing because we know that not all protein sources are created equal in terms of their amino acid profile. Um, I don't think we now consider animal protein superior anymore in terms of quality. Perhaps that's probably something that's you can speak to because I know that you've got a lot of experience in this area. Um, no, I think that's a very fair summary of it. I, you know, I think that no matter which dietary pattern you follow, that being protein aware is important and where you're getting your protein from. As you said, it's just as important to kind of focus on each side. Sometimes I, I do think in the plant-based community, the importance of protein is downplayed a little bit. So I do like to kind of draw people's attention to it to say, no, it is still important. And here you're talking about its importance for the immune system, but it's important for a variety of reasons and it doesn't mean that you need to be obsessed but being aware and, and having diversity I think for the reasons that you mentioned is a, a sensible uh, approach to it. I just want to clarify I think earlier you said um, getting our protein from animals or humans um, and I I don't think you were talking about us being cannibals so <laughs> You meant animals <laughs> or plants, um, just for those who, who who thought the podcast took took a turn. Yeah, I, I had a chuckle on the inside. I'm glad you uh, <laughs> you caught that. <laughs> that was that was going to scare a, a whole lot of people that are uh, interested in improving their immune system. <laughs> I'm not sure whether they are uh, willing to go that far. Hopefully not. Um, fats. Let's quickly tie off on fats. So you, you've spoken about uh, olive oil being uh, beneficial, but just just kind of high level, um, what would you like people to think about when it comes to fat in their diet? It's, it's often, a, again, black and white. It's a, it's a word that has been demonized and I think people are scared of fat and, and are sometimes just a little bit confused by it. So maybe you can clear up some of that confusion. Yeah. So, you know, fats are one of those things that have been vilified, but it's, it's again, we talk about it like it's one thing, but it's not one thing. Um, it, it's There's many different types. They're playing important roles, not only in our immune system, but also more broadly in our general health. So they're helping us absorb specific um, vitamins. They can help with things like blood sugar regulation. They're a key part of the structure of our uh, cells. Um, particularly, this is important for our immune system. They make up the cell membrane. They can help uh, our cells move around the body properly. Um, they're needed for things like hormone production and they're playing a really key role in resolution of inflammation. So as I mentioned earlier, that particularly the omega-3 fats, which are the polyunsaturated fats that are considered essential, they are the raw materials for specific pro-resolving mediators, which are switching off inflammation and bringing the tissue to, to resolution. Um, and I think that these are the ones that probably in terms of um, supporting your immune system, we need to have a focus on. We have the, the, the various different types of omega-3, so the EPA and DHA found in oily fish or, or supplements, and the alpha-linoleic acids from the um, plant sources. I think that, you know, the, there is the 
discussion that ALA is poorly converted to the EPA and DHA in many people. But I think there might be benefits from ALA as well that are only sort of starting to come through um, in the literature. I think it is one that I would encourage people to supplement with if they're not eating oily fish. And particularly if you have an inflammatory disease, there's a real growing body of evidence to support um, this as being uh, an intervention. Um, And then things like olive oil, the monounsaturated uh, fats um, are things that we should include regularly in our diet. And then the saturated fats just come up again and again because they do have direct pro-inflammatory properties. They can be um, able to uh, exacerbate the the, um, uh, permeability of the gut barrier and they can switch on things like the inflammasome, which is a molecular complex that's upstream of um, producing those inflammatory mediators. And then trans fats, we have quite a lot of evidence that they can be pro-inflammatory, but most of these are are removed from the food system. I think at least in the UK, there's a lot of uh, guidelines around that. Yeah, they're pretty much removed in Australia. I think they can be trace amounts, but if you're trying to minimize ultra-processed foods, then you minimize a lot of your your exposure um, there. You mentioned the the DHA, EPA and supplementing that if you're not getting a direct source. I think that's a, a sensible idea, a good reminder for folks that are not eating fatty fish, which is not just vegans, as a large percentage of society that are not consuming the kind of recommended two serves of, of fatty fish a week. Um, I had Bill Harris on. The episode hasn't gone up yet, but he, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him, but he has done a lot of research on omega-3s and he too shared that that position of yours or that view that ALA does seem to have some inherent benefits and it might not just be a, a precursor, it might actually have some kind of biologically um, uh, or it might affect some, some pathways. So um, that's interesting. And on this idea of supplementing, and this is kind of, I guess, bringing us to a little bit of a, a close here. Um, what are your thoughts on on multivitamins or, um, you know, high-dose vitamin D, for example, or high-dose vitamin C? All of these kind of come up in this conversation around supporting our immune system. What is worth considering for someone? What do you think is a waste of money? Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good point to end on. I always get to ask by people when they are falling sick or they have a diagnosis or an infection, what do I take to get better? And so my response is like, well, what were you doing before? Um, so it's there's not really a blanket guideline, but I always go with food first, but sometimes supplement. I mean, we all like a quick fix. We like the idea of having to take a few supplements, never having to worry about our immune system again. But I think that um, the word quick fix and immunity can't really go in the same sentence. It's about, uh, you know, the science is in the consistency and that 360 lifestyle approach. And I've always noticed on social media, whenever I do videos or anything around food, there'll be someone in the comments going, but what about like the psychological aspect of health? And so you have to put everything in context with that 360 degree lifestyle approach. Even diet itself is only one tool of many that we need to tweak. Um, I don't think the supplement aisle is going to offer that panacea, um, but it 
perhaps provide someone with a sense of agency over their health. And who doesn't like to feel like they're investing money to in something that's going to make them feel better? Um, I think that generally, when you look at micronutrient supplements on, uh, you know, a whole host of different things and, and all causes of death, often they don't show any benefit unless you have a deficiency. And it goes back to that sort of uh, hangover from the short latency deficiency diseases. If you have scurvy, you can, you know, have the miracle cure by intervening with vitamin C and your health is restored. And that all happens on a short space of time. But if you're not deficient, I don't know that there is a case for taking more than you necessarily need when you're a healthy adult um, the advantage of vitamin and mineral supplements might come when you are sick and you need additional support because your needs have gone up. So we know during acute infection, we use way more vitamin C, zinc, selenium. So these are often the nutrients that get highlighted as being the, the immunity nutrients. And so we can see that the levels will drop in the body. And when we have a short-term supplement intervention, the, that restores that loss and it can get people back on the road to recovery quicker. Um, that's a kind of general way of looking at it. So if you want to shave a little bit of time off your, your minor upper respiratory tract infection, keep some in your little uh, medicine cupboard for when the symptoms onset. But before that, upstream of that, make sure you've got the habitual healthy diet and you're covering all of your nutritional bases. Vitamin D is probably the exception. Um because it's the one that we more need from sunlight. Um, vitamin D plays a really unique role in the immune system. It helps those body barriers have their integrity. So it's resisting, it's that first line of defense against infection. It helps the innate immune system switch on inflammation really quickly and get the immune response going if something does infect you. But equally, it also supports that regulatory arm of the adaptive immune system that controls the immune response. So low vitamin D, we tend to see people overshoot with their inflammation and get very sick. Um, and we they don't have that counter-regulatory balance. They're also more susceptible in the first place because their barriers don't have that integrity. But there's actually little consensus worldwide on what, how much vitamin D we need, particularly for the immune system, because many of the guidelines are based on things like bone health. I think the US Endocrine Society is probably the one that has the broadest guidelines that tries to incorporate vitamin D for um, immune functions. So we want to be um, around 50 nanograms per mil, um, 50 to 70, I think. So or above 30 is sort of the... the bottom end. So it's going that. to depend on how much sun exposure someone gets, a little bit de depending on what diet they have, uh, how much adiposity in their sort of body weight. But do you have a kind of rough sense for uh, a dosage that would help the, the average person get to an optimal vitamin D status? You know, is it, are we talking you know, 400 IU, 1000 IU? I see people online talking about the benefits of high high um, strength doses at sort of five thousand or ten thousand IU. What what does the evidence kind of say? Yeah, I mean, it, I always have to sort of go with um, public health guidelines because if I um, 
different people will be in a different situation. So it will depend on things like your genetics. It will depend on things like your magnesium status. Your gut health can play a role. Uh, the level of inflammation in your body, um, different minerals, you know, what type of vitamin D that you're taking, how much sun exposure you're getting. So I always direct people to the public health guidelines in their country, then say, okay, if you're a person who's indoors a lot, or if you have dark skin tone, or if you have obesity, or you may be also deficient in other cofactors that are involved in, in the vitamin D's function, then you might need to take more. But test, don't guess. You know, go and get um, from your family doctor or there's some online uh, companies where you can get a, a readout. I would say, though, that that will give you a measure of 25-hydroxyvitamin D, which needs to be then converted to 1,25-dihydroxyvitamin D in the body to be used. Um, that we, we measure the 25-hydroxyvitamin D because it has a bit of a longer half-life. It's easier to measure in the blood. Um, the 125-dihydroxy is a bit harder to measure, but our immune cells can make their own active vitamin D, the 125-dihydroxy. They can make their own reaction to convert it, which tells us it has a really important role in those immune cell function. The problem is, if they are making more, it might mean that there's something going on with your immune system, like you, it, there's inflammation in the body, which means that your blood levels might be low, which means that you might supplement more, but you're not addressing the root cause of why that vitamin D is low. Can you test for both so you can see that? I think you might have to find a specialist lab that would be able to look for that. It, it's more uh, challenging to test. So that's why the 25-hydroxy is the usual readout that people will get if they're just getting a routine test. But it, it, we can't, if we, if we don't know, then we can sort of imagine that that's the only that that's the only tool that we've we've got to go on. So I just think um, it's a good it, it go with the public health guidelines in your area and think about your lifestyle uh, and test and see as a sort of idea of okay. what's going on. So bottom line, get that baseline test done, and then you can have a discussion with your physician around local guidelines, taking into consideration your patient history and skin color and diet and sun exposure and all that sort of stuff, um, you'll, you'll come to a very personalized dosage um, for you. With regards to, you mentioned earlier that there is some evidence that when you are sick, that vitamin C, selenium, zinc, there is some evidence, if I kind of heard correctly, that taking those could help with recovery and speed that up. Is that something that we have a dosage with? Oh, I, I probably have it in the book, but I don't remember off the top of my head. That's okay. We can we can put that into the the show notes if you want. Yeah, for sure. I think with vitamin C, it can actually tear uh, tear up the gut barrier a bit at, at quite high doses, and then obviously you're going to have that hyperpermeability, which is going to exacerbate inflammation. So you want to maybe space out the dose across the day. Um, uh, and again, things like zinc, you don't want to be supplementing for the long term because it can throw out problems with other micronutrients too. Um, and again, with selenium. So it is really like a, that's your short-term intervention and it might shave a little bit off of the infection. But ultimately, if you're not resting and giving your immune system that time to respond, it's kind of like, you know, don't, don't just take a whole bunch of 
you know, vitamins and then trying to go about your daily life when you have those symptoms of a minor infection. I think that's the piece that is missing. You know, people really want to have that invincible recovery uh, as soon as possible back on your feet. And it's a certain, there's, there's only so much you can speed things up. And a lot of that is going to come down to the rest piece because immune responses are energetically costly to your body. And there's a certain triaging of that energy away from other activities. But we just want to continue on and and not rest and throw the kitchen sink at it. So, um, in terms of these rescue, um, these different vitamins, minerals that can help speed up recovery, some of the other things that I see come up are garlic or turmeric, uh, honey in tea, for example, echinacea, uh, elderberry. Uh, you mentioned adaptogens in mushrooms. Is there any evidence that we have from sort of clinical studies looking at any of these in a sort of placebo-controlled manner? Um, Or if not, do you know of any kind of evidence at all that would suggest that these compounds are kind of worth someone trying? Yeah, I think the the big ones that probably there are evidence around um, is the vitamin C, which what I would take with something like citrus bioflavonoids. So these are the the other components of citrus fruit that actually help support the use of vitamin C. Zinc, um, I mean, for vitamin C, we have uh, Cochrane reviews showing that it will slightly reduce the duration of infection. Um, and there's more data coming through now with, with COVID. But I think it's whether, you know, it's how much, you know, what's half a day less of an infection <laughs> you know they're quite marginal improvements uh it might be more beneficial for people who are older who are highly stressed or who exercise a lot or have greater needs for certain nutrients um zinc again there's Cochrane data these these are large meta-analysis saying that taking um small supplemental doses of zinc over the day can reduce the duration of things like the common cold but again high doses can have sort of unpleasant side effects and taking um, flavonoids with your zinc can help it get inside your cells and, and do its job, as well as those flavonoids having their own antiviral properties. So, you know, taking zinc, but also having that really plant-rich meal. Um, and selenium, again, there's um, some evidence that as a supplement, it, you, it, should, it could be uh, helpful when you're sick, particularly if you're already deficient. Um, and then I think just... The other botanicals that are kind of interesting uh, are things like garlic. Um, so taking garlic when you're sick may help marginally improve. But again, it's th- these effects are really small. And a lot of the studies with the botanicals are quite small. So it's not like we have this really robust body of evidence to say definitively. Um, and then again, turmeric and the curcumoids again, that these have their own suite of antiviral and antibacterial activity um, and they can be quite useful when you're, when you're unwell. Mm, well, maybe we need big, big garlic and big turmeric to increase their funding. We need some bigger studies. Yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. In the meantime, experiment. Yeah, just there's something to be said for making yourself like a nourishing bowl of soup that includes a lot of these ingredients, like um, uh, ginger and the, the warming spices, uh, combining all the synergistic forces and something that makes you feel like a hug in a mug, you know, like a really nourishing meal. 
can nurture your mental well-being, which is a big part of getting well mm, that again. That kind of takes us full circle to the self-compassion that you mentioned uh, at the outset. Yeah. Um, Jenna, I think this has been exceptionally informative. Thank you so much. Uh, and probably a great place for us to kind of close this one out. We'll save some space for next episode where we can kind of continue on and then delve into some of those specific conditions, the autoimmune conditions, asthma, uh, anorexia in the immune system, cancer in the immune system, et cetera. For now, was there anything that you felt we missed today that you wanted to kind of add to, to any of the topics we discussed? Yeah, I mean, we, we've gone through a lot. I think just to yeah, bring it back around to, to that idea of, of self-compassion and, and convalescence, you know, like your body needs time to heal and time cannot be found in, in supplements and protocols. And um, it's something that we need a culture change for, really. Like, I'm quite curious of this you know, presenteeism, we, we need to show up and be at work, even though we're ill. And it's kind of a badge of honour. It starts with school kids. But, you know, we we function worse when we're unwell and we're at work, but it, it delays our healing time. Um, and, and that idea of um, you're ill, you rest, and then you convalesce, you allow time for recovery, um, I think is it's a really big, important part of tackling some of the health issues that we have. Um, but it comes from that top down, like changing society and how we view illness. Mm. Beautifully put. Very, very wise and evidence-based. Um, for folks that want to get a copy of your book, Your Blueprint for Strong Immunity, I will put a link to that into the show notes along with your uh, website and, and social media details. Thank you again and uh, I look forward to part two. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation. I hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive. If you did and you'd like to show your support for the show, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I myself and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.